Hello, hello. Welcome to another episode of Just Two Dudes Reading Theory. I'm Chris. I'm Preston. And this week we are talking H.P. Lovecraft mm. and his essay on cosmic horror. And uh, luckily, we're just going to begin with his first argument because it is the first sentence of the book. He says that the oldest and strongest emotion of mankind is fear, and the oldest and strongest kind of fear is fear of the unknown. Which is a great opening sentence. I yeah, say. it's it's pretty good. And I also think it not only captures his philosophy of horror. I think it. I think he believes it wholeheartedly. I think that is the thread that connects every story in a single swoop together. Yes, even outside of just like his, you know, collected mythos, like our, you know, Cthulhu and. Elder Gods mythos. I think all of his stuff fits that as like the core thing is this unknown element. He, because uh, he mentions later on like some of his complaints with the earlier horror writers or that they like explain everything in the end and everything's neatly tied up. Yes. And all of it's just fully fleshed out and he's like, that just ruins the ending. You destroy, like, the best part of the fear when you don't, you know, um, leave stuff open. Yeah, and I, I think that, um, in a sense, structurally what he winds up arguing for is the dictatorship of the setting. Mm. That... Oh, yeah. <clears throat> well, everything else can be important, and obviously his characterization is important, uh, plot is obviously not nothing, but overwhelmingly, he's sort of an essentialist on this one point. Like, it is setting. And by that, he even means more specifically, atmosphere. Yes. Because he talks about how um, in the American horror section of, uh, of the essay, he talks about how, like the architecture of the house is super important to this storytelling because of the way it connects to, you know, these older... Because it's the gothic style that he says is, like, super important in uh, yeah in these settings over the colonial that eventually took over at that time period because it's so key to that, like, eerie setting... Same thing when he talks about Poe and all these other people is like, the castle is super important. Yes. And there, there, there needs to be this vastness. And the, this... the ocean. Another yeah. one, you know, for Poe's stories, like Message in a Bottle, which is one of my favorite Poe stories because, you know, you're already at sea as the setting and the sea itself is going to swallow. And, 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 that's, and that's super important. And I also think like there's this aspect that when reading this, what's most dissonant about reading his philosophy of horror is how dissonant it is with his own failures of executing his own philosophy. Oh, my... Okay, so <laughs> right? it's one of the things that reading this essay, like, kind of blew my mind a little bit. Yeah. Was how good he is at critiquing literature. Yes. And how well read he is on top of that. Yeah, like he's name dropping left and right. 
yeah. with a lot of familiarity in these people. And yeah. also, we gotta mention the surprisingly not sexist remarks. Oh yeah, about... he's in- including women at every turn. Yeah. Women and men together at every turn. And then even favorable towards other people, which is really weird. Like at one point, if I remember right, he talks about Jewish mythology and the Dybbuk in mm-hmm. a way that's imminent, like 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 that's that's positive towards the goal of cosmic horror. And and I think he's right, of course, but also why stop there? What about African American cosmic horror? What about Africans? What about true Eastern That was countries. his unknown <laughs> that he was terrified of. Right, but it's wild that he can get to Jewish mythology, but he somehow can't see that it's just going to be more of what he would actually like Yeah. in Chinese folklore. I mean, there's this great text called Strange Tales from a Chinese Studio by Pu Song Ling, and it has... Now, now I, I don't think Lovecraft ever read it because he would have mentioned it like 20 million times. But, like, <laughs> it just has obvious elements that are part of his project. <laughs> you know, and, and so, so there's like... Like, it's like when so he mentions what, like... Eastern horror and then he starts talking about <clears throat> Egypt. And you're like, oh. So not that far <laughs> east. Not <laughs> as far east as we're going, huh? <laughs> yeah, it's like... And then, and then, if I remember, there's also a passage where he speaks favorably about the, um, like, Arabian Nights. Mm-hmm. And, again, it's like, it's like okay, so if it's an indisputable classic, he's on board. But it's like he can't see how racist he is elsewhere. It, it's so weird. It's, it, I don't know. It's, it's, like, reading this just kind of broke my brain with H.P. Lovecraft, because... Yes. I didn't expect him to be like, I mean, this well read for one thing, and also like how good he is at critiquing all these different aspects of it. Like, the dude knows how to look at stuff from different angles. Yes. But man, he just had some weird blocks. So, and then for, to cue in our listeners um, about what we're talking about. In his fiction, Lovecraft is above and beyond racist. It is not. It doesn't require a degree in gender studies. It's like to 50s see his cartoons. It's cartoonishly racist. Yeah. Like, like he he will say, there's a story called um, the Rats in the Walls, and there is a cat that is no, that is called N Word Man, and it's like oh he named it after his own cat which was called N Word Man. <laughs> And he had this clear disdain of black people in America. I mean, the the poem. <clears throat> the poem, yeah. And there's the, this... the only thing they didn't complete in my complete works of H. P. Lovecraft. They didn't. They didn't put that one in there. And they should have. I think. I think because you have to know the full subjectivity of the man. You have to know that that he is not clean no but this is where you could read it a couple different ways and i think this is really important for where we're going to go in talking about lovecraft's philosophy is is 
his philosophy, his first gateway in allowing his racism. Like, we're going to read Freud's Uncanny next, and he's going to pose a completely different view of what's troublesome in viewing images and other people and, broadly speaking, horror. But for Lovecraft, if fear of the unknown is our strongest then what is ever unknown to the subjectivity we're reading, so whatever is unknown to Lovecraft, is almost by default horrifying. Like, Ooh. there's no absolute other that is imminently positive other than in the euphoric, dreamlike experience of the other geographies. Mm. You know, and the experience of not knowing and the... And those are all positive emotions of... of, of Seeing the world as imminently vaster than you would before Lovecraft. Seeing other geographies as more magical. And yet, he can't connect that to a view of other people mm -hmm. as anything other than just disgust. Yeah. Which is really weird, I think, actually. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, it's so strange. And I mean, that's why the, like... I expected him to be sexist with the views that he held. Right. And then there's a part when talking about Frankenstein where he mentions, he's like, there are some that claim her husband in the writing. I am clearly not in that party, and I think there's clear proof to prove otherwise. Like, he takes a pretty firm stance. He's like, nah, Ma Mary did it. And he, go yeah, so he goes out of the way, and he lauds that text. It's not that he, like... Finds that text no, middle of the road. It's incredibly it important and 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 um, formative. So, another argument he makes towards the end. We're going to obviously come back to racism and sexism and issues in the text because they're they're they do infect it. But the historical lineage he's developing in this essay is he's trying to birth a new genre. Mm. Right, he's trying to bring all these disparate elements, moments in ancient texts. You know, I would even throw in ancient Greek plays like Aeschylus as having moments of purely other um, mm. horror. Um, in the Oresteia, there's a, especially in Agamemnon, there's there's a couple like really horrifying uh, moments, and I think that like he's building this lineage because. Not just because he loves history. Like, obviously he loves all the history of these texts from the Gothic all the way up through his era. But he really is trying to say that his moment is special. Mm. Right? Like, he's trying to bring us to Dunsany and the contemporary weird fiction as being somewhat climactic of what he's talking about, I think. Mm. I, w I would agree with you there. I think you're right. Um. But do you agree... Like, do you think that Lovecraft was the climax of weird fiction? Because wouldn't we usually say it was the beginning? Yes. So this, I mean, I think this is kind of a little bit of the, uh, you, you get a, a good idea of how highly he thought of himself. Right. Um, because, yeah, like, I, I think that he created a lot of really good groundwork that other people made weirder. Like it, yeah. He he was the starting point, not the climax. 
And I think you could even make like the argument via medium that, yeah, weird fiction is its own thing, but it also, we have weird cinema. You know, we have the thing. We have, we have a degree of oh my God, cosmic he, horror in he cinema. He would have died if he saw the thing. He would have seen the end of that and been like, this, this is, stop making movies. This is all we had to do. Just the slow pan out with, yeah. <laughs> with uh, you know, your two characters. Is one of them the thing? Is Are they both not the thing? Are they just going to die out there? Yeah. Well, even, so obviously, and the thing is a good choice and a bad choice, right? Because it's bad because he also wants to separate cosmic horror from more pedestrian, like, body horror. He clearly is like... There's violent texts like war and sexual violence and all these other things that are imminent, like really violent. And he's trying to make the argument that you don't really need any of that. Mm. You know what I mean? Like like a, a in point. the color out of space, it's like you have the bodies decaying and that's visually horrifying, of course. But it would still function if you had no visible horrifying body horror, I think. And so maybe like... I feel uh, like the ultimate cosmic horror that in cinema would be Alien without Alien. <laughs> like, it's already cosmically horrifying. You're in space. Just, <laughs> right? it, just imagine the Alien isolation game, but it's glitched so there's no Alien. But, but there's still... You don't know if there's there is There's eerie yeah. music and you don't know. Like, yeah, it's... Okay, yeah, it reminds yeah. me of this uh, Jurassic Park game I played as a kid on, like, old... 3.1 DOS computer, so... Yeah. Super old, like, you type in prompts to get programs to pop up. So we had this Jurassic Park game that... It's fucking great. One of the levels you get to is, like, first person, you know, and this is, like, super old, like, Doom-style graphics. Oh, yeah. But at the time, you know, we're like, oh, God, it's fucking amazing. It's amazing, yeah. And so you're going into a bunker in it, you know, like, in the movie, you got your little gun, and, uh... You're just, like, waiting for the raptors to pop out at you. But they never did. And oh, so, yeah. like, just for years, we just thought it was going to happen. And then I found out, like, later on, I looked the game up. It's just a glitch. There was something wrong in the coding of the game. Oh, beautiful. And so the raptors <laughs> just didn't show up. Yeah. So that was some, uh, some cosmic horror. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, I think that's great. I think I think that's also, like, um, another reason I think we think of it as being the beginning. Well, it could be, is is because it's it's a moment of synthesis that we, we kind of think of as breaking apart later. Like, mm. I think in cinema, you know, you can have arguments all the time if, like, Star Wars is sci-fi or fantasy. Huh. And, like, I think it matters more now, maybe just a little bit, like, if a, a book or a movie is horror, detective, sci-fi, or, like, there's a sort of genrefication that happens, and I think that Lovecraft would find that problematic, because he really sees these things as real. Mm. You know, like, the ghost, like, like, contrast Lovecraft with, like, a ghost story, where... It would ruin the ghost story if the ghost was actually an alien. Mm. Because then it's material. Then it's real. It's in 
it's in biology in oh. in like a real thing whereas what he is doing is sort of saying that the real is horrifying not that the ghost story there's never actually like a ghost story in that way okay that's i i think that's spot on because see, have you ever seen the first paranormal activity oh yeah terrified edge of my seat until the flower scene I don't remember the flower. So they lay out the Q-S-A. flower to see if they can get the footprints. And then yeah. they see the footprints in the flower. And they're like dinosaur footprints. Oh, yeah. Rip. All of this like suspense and terror mm. that had mm-hmm. been built just sucked out instantly. Same thing with Jeepers Creepers. The second you see that monster, oh, the, now this isn't scary anymore. Like all of it, all the atmosphere, yeah. everything just... Gone. And I think this is where I think I think maybe our consciousness even like as modern readers is actually a little different. Because for him, remember, I mean I, I actually made this point, but this is kind of a historical there's a moment in reading this where you go, Oh, that's a historical moment at the turn of the twentieth century. There is here involved a psychological pattern or tradition as real and as deeply grounded in mental experience as any other pattern of mankind, coeval with the religious feeling, blah, 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 and too much a part of our inmost biological heritage to lose keen potency over a very important, though not numerically great, minority of our species. The biological aspect of this, I think, is less horrifying to us. So, like, like, because it's all real in Lovecraft. There are real aliens. And there's, in the story that we read, um, the witches, in the witch's house, there is a play with the ghost story, right? Because it's, it's supernatural in a sense. But as soon mm-hmm. as you're in another geography and it's clear it's real and there's a thing, it's a little different from how we'd tell it today i think because i think we'd want to say well if it's real then it can be shot <laughs> you know what i mean like <laughs> yeah, like like there's all this, there's always this joke that i make when i'm watching star wars right which is like not star wars harry potter which is like you know a gun would just like be awesome right oh my god have you ever read the you know what harry potter needed was a 1911 and it goes on to just list how all these problems could have been solved if he just had an arsenal of guns instead of magic. And, like, obviously, I brought this up at one point to someone else, and they said, like, well, yeah, but that's because spells would just disarm you. And you're like, well, yeah, obviously, that's not the point. The point is that it's magic. If it's real, I have nukes. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, I could just nuke it. <laughs> like, I could bomb the shit out of the town until all the bad wizards are dead. Yeah. And, they, you know, and so we just don't have that. You know, they, like, they bring we, that up and it's like, try using a disarm spell when you're getting picked off from two miles away by a 50 caliber sniper rifle. <laughs> right, right. It's, it's, and that's exactly true. And I think that that doesn't, this is nothing against Harry Potter or fantasy, but what it's saying is, is that, that is magic. And so you have a different set of laws. Mm. In Lovecraft, you always have the option of a gun. It just doesn't help you ever. Because it's an alien creature that you don't understand. I think that, like, 
I mean, its very you know, nature is beyond your capability to understand. Yeah. I mean, yeah. a lot of the Elder Gods, a regular mm-hmm. theme is the, uh, to look upon them is to, you know, become mad. Like, you can't even look at them because it'll just break your brain. But, like, I don't know if that works as well today. Like, after Lacan, I don't know where it's like, you know, at the end of the day, a god is just a signifier of god. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right? Like, that's that's my quote, not Lacan's. But, like, it's still, it's the same type of thing. Like, a god signifies god to those who will give it symbolic efficiency. To those who it doesn't signify god, it just signifies big, powerful thing. Mm-hmm. It doesn't necessarily signify... Like, like, the idea of going mad in a Lovecraftian way doesn't work anymore. I don't think. I mean, that's a that's a really out there point, but maybe it makes Lovecraft more fun than he wanted. Right? Because, like, that's why the color out of space is so great, right? Because it's like, the alien has this power to do things that we don't understand, and we can't. But, like, after... After Roswell and, like, New Mexico and all these things, our idea of what an alien is going to do, I think, would make Lovecraft kind of sad. Because at the end of the day, it's going to be a monster you could shoot or something, right? Or, or you have to have a different weapon. But at the end of the day, a weapon will do it. Which, I mean, this also... You know, you got to give Lovecraft credit for the time he was mm-hmm. writing... Mm-hmm. He's coming up with some pretty fucking cool ideas about aliens and shit. Like, I think he is yeah. not just, you know, your quintessential cosmic horror writer. The mm-hmm. dude was kind of a pioneer of science fiction. Right, because if you think about it, a wrong way to read Lovecraft is that the aliens are humanoid with, like, big eyes and are, like, you know, close encounters of the third kind type things. The idea is... Never that way. They are beyond your capacity. It's actually closer to, like, um, what's that? what's that movie... Which has the linguist trying to help them decipher? Oh, uh, the Arrival. It's it. Lovecraft is closer to Arrival than Which most others. I, I tend to appreciate that. That's why yeah. I'm big fan of this show on HBO. The uh, um, Scavengers Reign, I think, is what it's called. Mm-hmm. Because the alien world isn't just you know. What if we took all the same things we have but make them a little bit weird? Yeah. It's like the flora, fauna, animals, you know, all that stuff is so bizarre. Yeah. And, and different. kind of beyond, right? Yes. Like, and it I don't it's it's a fun one. Highly, highly recommended. Yeah, that's that's great. I, 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 I tend to like that stuff more because you know, the the whole all the aliens, you know, most of them are gonna pretty much look humanoid, but maybe like lizard humanoid kind of a thing. And this guy's kind of like a bug, but still a person. Oh, and we have translators that we can just translate yeah. language to each other. It, well, it's kind of like um, I feel like a marker of where we're historically at is the episode of Rick and Morty. Where the devil opens a monkey paw, monkey's paw shop, uh-huh. and there's like, you know, there's so like the, the premise of that episode is like the devil shows up and he opens up these like 
monkey's paw shops where you get a thing you don't pay in money oh you mean the curse you know so you get the curse and then rick opens up a shop across the street which removes the curse so you can enjoy the just the benefit just the benefit of the item and his ultimate argument is more lovecraftian which is there is no magic it's just a reality you don't yet understand or have the capacity as mere humans to understand but a figure like rick would understand it and i think that like i think there's like two different types of beyonds here right like on the one you have a beyond of material like reality itself is what you cannot fathom Mm. which is i think for a lot of people probably still true it's sort of true for me, but I would say that the ghost story is somewhat more durable because you have to accept a literal different set of rules to the laws of material. You know, the law of spell casting or the laws of like grudges or mm. whereas like none of that really matters in Lovecraft. What matters is the beyond of things. And the broader point I'm just trying to make about Lovecraft is that is what situates him in his era, Mm. I think, is this sudden realization of accepting evolution and the intricacies and maybe at that time horror of our biological history. But I don't think... Well, for those in America who grew up as young Earthers, I don't, I don't actually know about that. But like for other people, for everyone else who went to like a regular science curriculum, <laughs> it's not going to be that same, same thing. You know, what's going to be the ghost story is going to be that more was durable. Yeah, right. Well, it's, yeah, it's, it's, it's gonna. I think the ghost story is going to be more durable, and where where Lovecraft still reigns supreme is as that founder of what material can do. Mm. Like like how wild literal reality is instead of this other scene of a ghost world where suddenly you have to debug oh. the ghost's prejudice against their yeah. father or something. I, I think you know? we kind of nailed two stories that yeah. touch on both of those. Because while like Dreams in the Witch House, like there's a bit of the ghost story element yeah. to it. But, you know, they're like the... The Cult of Cthulhu, like, even in the brief description of uh, Cthulhu, it's, like, your guns, nukes, like, there's nothing humanly possible that could do anything about this. Yeah. Like, his, his size is so immense that he can walk on the seafloor and his head's still out of the water. Yeah, like, um, well, like, I think at, at that point we're talking a lot of, like, Japanese anime, right? <laughs> like, like, Gurren Lagann and right? stuff, right? Like, where it's like, uh, no, even better, um, Attack on Titan, right? Ooh. Where you have these giant, I would say Attack on Titan is eminently Lovecraftian in a very strange way. I never thought I'd say that sentence, but th- there's a weird parallel between Attack on Titan world of... Because what's until what the later is, seasons, the last season, well, yeah, you like, learn all this stuff. Yeah, but like before that, just oh, the idea man, the of the first season of that, I couldn't stop watching and this it, encroaching dread 
of these giant people that eat people distinctly abject objects right like they're 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 so christevian to go to our last oh my podcast God. right holy shit yeah. spot on because they always have like weird facial features and they're disproportionate and they're always just a little off or and they're they don't naked. have fucking skin yes yeah. yeah and they're naked and they're big and they're flappy and foldy and smiling all the time <laughs> they're horrifying they're 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 horrifying Oh, yeah. But they're horrifying because they're real. Like, this is a war. You know, like, it's a war. I, I do think that, like, that thread fits into the Lovecraftian thread. And the reason I'm sorry, the reason I'm parsing all these different threads is because in our next podcast, we're reading Freud's Uncanny, and he's going to posit a literal, like, completely different view, mm. I think, of what's horrifying over Lovecraft. Like... Because for Freud, what's uncanny is the fact that you're seeing something unfamiliar in what's distinctly familiar. Mm. There's a movie called They Look Like People, which is like either a guy is having a schizophrenic breakdown or he's seeing the arrival of something other. And there's just a scene where the character turns and their smile doesn't and it just elongates as they turn. And that's more of the uncanny view where it's like, so is this a remake of They Live? Oh yeah, well, I don't know. Yeah, <laughs> it was. It wasn't even that great of a just movie. Put on the it was fucking just, glasses. Yeah, just put on the glasses. That's, yeah, that's, no, no, that's yeah. Twenty minute fight scene. Just put on the glasses. I got a wife and kids, man. Just put on the glasses. Just put on the glasses. Uh, we could do a whole episode on that and like G Jack or someone. But... Fucking amazing. But but yeah, so like I feel like the Lovecraftian horror. All I'm doing right now is just articulating a certain limit. Where if it doesn't signify other to a person, it doesn't work. Okay, so oh, I, <laughs> right. I think you're spot on here. Because, like, while, you know, I think a lot of his writing, like you said, like, I think he very much intended to be like, this is peak horror. This is as yeah. fucking scary as it gets. But I don't think he accounted for a generation of readers... Like me, you, and Anna, who are like, give me the most fucked up scary shit I can find. And, you know, that I think that yeah. he definitely started something that I don't think he kind of saw where it went. Where, like, horror, it's really interesting reading, like, the history of horror and how, yes. like, it was a new genre yeah, in the 19th Fairly century. Fairly modernly. And yeah, it's... and like, by the way, I've read Castle of Otranto. For his, his criticisms of it are spot on. It's, it's a ridiculous novel. Um, the opening is like a wedding and like a giant skull breaks the wedding down and falls on a body, I think. It's like, it's like completely ridiculous. <laughs> but, but it's an 18th century novel where a giant skull falls on the ground. So, like, someone, I, you know? I definitely think you're a bit spot on with the, like, he thought this was the climax of the most horrifying thing ever. Yeah. But he was just the start of, like, horror fan people. Like, horror became, like, an obsession. I mean, we go to an Oddities and Curiosities yeah. convention that's just... Yeah, full of people who love horrifying shit. Well, I think I think his influence also. Like I think, how do I put this? Um, there's other ways to maintain 
ambiguity. Like, like I think that like for him, it's all going to eventually be real and we just cannot handle that. Mm. Yes. But I think that like, if you look at movies like the shining, I haven't, I haven't read the book, but I, I love the movie. Um, in the movie, what's ambiguous about it is the meaning Right, mm. it's not. It's not the fact that there's ghosts or not ghosts. I don't think. I mean, I, I'm sure that one reading is that he just goes crazy, and that's fine. But like, I don't think that's a good reading or a very fun one. I think what's more of a fun reading is that Kubrick deliberately plants so many Easter eggs to make one reading not possible. Yes. But you know, yes. there's like go. It's 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 eminently supernatural. But the idea that it'd be all material. Would, would ruin it. Like if it was an alien playing with people or a, 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 a an extra zone that didn't work or something. I, I don't think it would, mm. I don't think it would work. Hmm. So I've got one for you. Yeah. Have you seen cabin in the woods? Yes. That is, I think a perfect one to talk about with Lovecraft, right? Cause like, how do we talk about that one in there? <laughs> I, cause like the ending is very Lovecraftian. I mean, the, the premise that's revealed once we, you know, get underground is very Lovecraftian, but it also kind of follows the structure of explaining things. It does. But then doesn't at the end. Like that's what the, the ending of it, I was like, oh, perfection. When that is blows, the, blows the, up. the hand just yeah. blasting through and smashed. I was like, mm, yes, perfect. The Titans are real. Yeah, right? like, it was, yeah, it was yeah. fucking great. Yeah, and I think I think that that movie, I think that's a different historical twist, right? Like I think that I think that like what that movie does is it winds up taking the monsters and fears you have and turning them into pets, but because it's a comedy, it works. Because you're not scared by the end, you know. It's uh, so. There's a quote from Derrida. I forget the exact wording of it, but it's basically like something along the lines of, "If you give your monster a name, you risk it becoming a pet." And that's one pitfall that Lovecraft is really on both sides of, I have to say, okay. right? Dude, <laughs> I think that is spot on for why the first Alien is the fucking best one. Yes. Yeah, totally. We, like, there's no fleshed out mythology behind it. There aren't a bunch of them yet. It is just this thing that they are incapable of defending themselves against. Yes. And, like, it's before it's been given the name of Xenomorph. Like, it's... It is just... We, we, you have to learn its qualities as you go on the fly. You're not, you're not coming in with background knowledge. Yeah, exactly. And I think that's maybe where we can talk... Let's, let's, I think we should talk now a little bit about his metaphor. So, to cue everyone in on the terms we're about to, to talk through... When you have one enclosed work, a uh, short story, or a really long single work that's enclosed, um, I use the word form. 
when you have two that hang together in some way, you have a metaphor. And the interplay between those two is infinitely fascinating. It's what I did my PhD research on. But like, for example, for the writer Balzac, each novel he wrote is a form, but the human comedy, the interconnected series of 90 novels and essays and short stories is the metaphor. And for, so for, for a very it's the simple. Dark yeah. Tower for Stephen King. Yeah, Dark Tower. And then for Lovecraft, it's the mythos. That's the metaphor. Uh, Marvel Universe. For, Marvel Universe is the metaphor. Th- yeah. That's the, yeah, that'd be the easiest one. Yeah, exactly. The, the, all the little movies, but they all feed into each other and then eventually. Yeah. The problem is, of course, is that once you have a metaphor, you have infinitely more aesthetic problems you have to attenuate and deal with than if you just have a short story that's mm. just that, that doesn't connect and just exists. Like shit, dude. I think that's why so many like because after Marvel did it, all these other movie studios tried to do the whole interconnected thing, and it's. It's not going so good. Well, pretty in, sure the yeah. Universal Monsters they gave up on that franchise <laughs> yeah. after the Mummy. DC is rebooting their entire universe for what, like the third time at this point. Yeah, it's just it's. Yeah, so like, like, like so one really easy thing you could talk about when you're talking about qualities of the metaform and not the form, is linear versus nonlinear. So like a novel series, like the first in the series, is a linear metaform. Mm. Whereas the Cthulhu mythos is a non-linear metaphor. Mm. He could write any story fitting in at any point. Right. The problem with the problem with Lovecraft's metaphor is pretty specific, I think, right? Because you have the problem that Nyarlathotep loses his otherness and becomes just as good as Jack. <laughs> Or like Jill, you know, like some named, like some named character that already has qualities. And even if those qualities are distinctly other, magical, blah, blah, blah. As soon as there's a repetition and Nyarlathotep is referenced in a second story, it's a character. Mm. Which means if it's a monster, we're getting pretty close to it being a pet. Oof. That's... It's weird, right? Because doesn't doesn't that mean that in Lovecraft you have this big, weird, cosmic conflict between characters that maintain their otherness, maybe Cthulhu does, and characters that are sort of just like, ah, yes, and now this guy shows up. Because <laughs> it can never be like God, right? Like, God in the Bible is a through line in all the books, but God is... God. <laughs> like, he's not given enough qualities physically to become a pet. He's still a character, I would argue, in the Bible. He's not He's not this omnipotent narrator thing. He's, he's, he's a subjectivity. He's not, you know... In a sense, I would that almost argue that Cthulhu is more interesting. <laughs> but, uh, being raised, having to read that for 18 years of my life, yeah. I find... Lovecraft's mythology infinitely more interesting. <laughs> yeah, because like Cthulhu's never going to show up and be like, will you please kill your son? I was just visiting this planet and decided to test your morals. The end. <laughs> you know, it's like, it's not, there's, that doesn't, that's not how Cthulhu works. No. He shows up and kills you and your son. Or his dead ghost. 
showing up in your dream. Ooh. Yeah, but like, so the, all of this is just to say that I think Lovecraft has a lot of issues with this, right? Because like, if I was going to give him a criticism, I would say that like, when the problem is, is that when you reach for your mythos, it occasionally comes across as reaching for stock characters. Oh! Right? Like, that do more labor if you've read the whole than they do if you've only read that story. Oof. And this is, so in the Dreams in the Witch House, we have Nyarlathotep reference, for example, and if you don't know who that is, it's just more names, basically. Mm -hmm. There's no... There's no labor it's doing, imagistically. But, um, I mean, he also, in that same one, references uh, Azathoth. Yeah. Who shows up in a few other stories. Um, he references the uh, uh, Necronomicon and these other books that show up in a bunch of his other stories. Yeah. But I think that may be another reason that Cthulhu is kind of one of the better ones is he's not a stock character. He doesn't no. show up in other stories. He's in this one short story and it's Lovecraft's most well-known work. Yeah, so much so that you're actually like you're making a great point where it's like you're surprised he's not he doesn't become a stock character, but you are pleased that he doesn't, right? Like because it's it, almost it, it, like <laughs> Lovecraft knew. He's like, "Holy shit." this is the best thing I've ever written. And then maybe was like, just couldn't find the right way to reintroduce him. And maybe that was for the better. Do you think like the reason why it's better is because he shows more restraint? Like he, do you think that the, like if we had just read the call of Cthulhu, do you think that just lines up with his philosophy perfectly and everything's good? Check boxes. Great. Move on. <laughs> Kind of like, yeah, kind of yeah. like what he talks about in this. Yeah, it, he nails it right in, in Call of Cthulhu. Yeah, or Cult of Cthulhu, I think is the actual name of the story. I'm oh, is the, it? Oh, I forget. I think Call of Cthulhu is a Metallica song, Cult of Cthulhu is the story. In the book I read, I think it was Call of Cthulhu. We'll just double check really quick. Here we got we got the book right here. I'm, Either way works fine, obviously. The, yeah, it's irrelevant one way or another. The Call of Cthulhu. You're right. They reference the Cult of Cthulhu in it. Oh, of course. So, okay. Other thing. So, first of all, um, as readers are probably well aware of, Preston and I love horror. And... So this, the Lovecraft is sort of, just sort of in our wheelhouse, like I would say. Like, this is just sort of, but I would also say that, like, when I first read Lovecraft, and I had to say this at some point in the podcast, I do think he's distinctly not a great writer of fiction. Yeah. And I, I just, I don't think there's anything really to talk about there other than just saying, I just have to make the point because what's weird is that he is a great writer in the essay Supernatural Horror in Literature. Oh, it, it's great. It's great. It's great. <laughs> it's, it's like, and you kind of, so the, the why I'm bringing that up is because that dissonance bothers me. 
And it's it was like one of the seven. So the first bizarre. thing I said in starting this podcast, and I'm going to reiterate now, the dissonance bothers me. Yeah, I I mean, once again, like when you read the Call of Cthulhu, you're like, oh, that was phenomenal. It was that was great. That lines up with what I'd read here. But then you read a lot of the other stuff, and you know, there's it's there's a lot of hit and miss. Yeah, and it's, like he it's may like create a just... great atmosphere, but. The writing itself, like, I, I don't know. Okay, I mean, we can just kind of list the issues. One of the main issues he has is an over-reliance on tired adjectives. Like, it was cold and eldritch and Stygian. Cyclopean. <laughs> Cyclopean. Non-Euclidean. And this is where I'm going to tie it back in. I think that the reason why he may be playing a game where he excuses his own aesthetic faults is I do wonder if he's trying to get us to think about the metaphor that it's Cyclopean because it's the same Cyclopean structures that wind up in all the stories, mm. but it doesn't work. It's it doesn't it doesn't do it. It's I don't know, and maybe because it was new. Yeah, but like at least for me, when I see like interconnected things, like this is kind of the thing that I like about. The way the Dark Tower does it yeah. is the way he interconnects all these books, for the most part, isn't him bashing it over your head over and over again until you get that this person is also this person. Right. It's a lot of them are very subtle, quick moments that you're like, I wonder why they brought that up. And then you'll read a different book of his and be like, oh, holy shit, that was the thing. Exactly. That's, that's a lot more fun to me than it being yeah. like, yeah, I, I get it. Yeah, and that's and that's where um, Stephen King and I would also say Balzac with the human comedy are better. <laughs> when it's subtle, I think it's a yeah, lot it's more better. fun. And and I also think like so that's one issue. Another issue is like he he can't he can't get into his stories. He can't figure out how he he has often great first paragraphs, horrible weird second paragraphs. Issues. Yeah, like weird and but they're sort of basic like. Preston and I, full disclosure, are not literary critics. So if we're seeing these issues as being sort of not aesthetic, they're aesthetic issues, but they're more technical issues. They're really like, like, like you go and bring your story to get critiqued by your professor and your cohort, and you learn not to do that. Yeah. <laughs> you know. <laughs> When you're at college, like, you yeah. just learned that it didn't work, right? Yeah, it, I I don't know. I, I feel like he's a dude who may not have done great at taking criticism. I think he thought very highly of himself. He's really good at taking his own criticism. So he critiques in his own letters to others. I He critiques his other stories when it didn't work. And so I, that's a mark for him, at least, that he does come to realize at different points where he was wrong. Mm. And I think that, like, I think that even though the technical issues are a problem, and, like, when I first started reading him, I immediately put him down. I read, the first thing I read by Lovecraft was the um, Mountains of Madness. Mm. And they kept, he referenced this one painter, I forget his name, like, three times. And it was just such a fundamental rule of writing to break of, like, it's like this painter. Oh my gosh. And then three pages later, oh my God, those mountains. They're like 
the same painter. And you're like, well, okay, I mean, you can give me a different image. And that repetition just rubbed me the wrong way. It's, it's like one of the main things in anything that I write. Yeah. It's like the first little thing running in the back of my head is I was like, no, nah, I, I, I used that. I started a sentence with that too soon ago. Like, I, I can't start it with that again. I've used this word already. I can't use that word again. I can't describe this that way. i got to use something different here. Right, and, like, and, it, and that's it not even... It makes more engaging writing. It makes more engaging writing. And this is not an issue that's about fiction or nonfiction or philosophy. That is an issue in writing. It's <laughs> just base level. Base level. But what's weird, again, is I never found that problem of repetition in the essay. It's not at all. Like, it almost seemed like a different voice. It was a different voice. I, I, I would even... I'm going to agree with you so much that I take it even further and say that it's like two people. Oh. Yeah. Like, it just... It's... There is him in fiction mode when he is in when I'm writing my stories and then this, which was just, Oh, so you do know how to write. You're using like clear sentences and paragraphs (laughs) and, and we're doing a historical, it's actually very, so how this essay is structured is that you have an introductory, um, chapter, which, which gives you his philosophy. And then you have something that's actually very hard to do, which is a historical overview for most of the rest of the whole rest of the book. And that is hard to do and maintain compelling because if you're a nonfiction writer and you're just doing a historical overview, it winds up sounding flat because it's like, and then this happened and then this happened and he evades that very clear. So he's he's like, he's like very aware of his own positioning and he is sometimes in his writing. I think that like the call of the Cthulhu, call of Cthulhu and also color out of space and a couple other stories I've read. I had that sense. He was aware at every page what he was doing. Mm. Yeah. There there are just some of them that they hit a little different. There was one other one that I thought about bringing up that, like, the ending of it, I just, I loved so much. Um, oh, fuck, what was it? Was it the horror at Innsmouth? Yeah. Yeah, that, that one's pretty fun. Yeah, I've... Yeah, I've heard that one's great. Um, so one last thing before we're done. We both made this point when we were reading him, but I feel like it's important for us to like mention is that the position of his protagonists helps us because you can embody the protagonist because they know as much as you do. Who? Which means that the unknown is unknown for you and unknown your protagonist yes um especially the the better ones definitely do that yeah um because uh like the first time i read uh dreams of the witch house yeah it was a little bit you know i I don't know it was probably a little bit more of a fun experience because going back the second time like the awareness of some of the stuff right made it like i I was like, I don't know, like, we kind of know it's not dreams, but he seems to be a bit of a dumbass about it. Like, he keeps going back to that same... They were doing a tried-and-true horror thing, which is 
doing the same hot stove thing a bunch of times. But maybe not this time. Like the muddy footprints. Yeah. Like, dude, you should have figured this out a long time before the muddy footprints, man. Yeah. Like, there, there were a lot more clues that those weren't dreams. At least not dreams in the way that we think about them. Yes. Yeah. Um, but with, like, Call of Cthulhu, like, even the way he, uh, like, structures the writing and the way he, like, tells the different parts of it and everything mm -hmm. feeds so well into, like, the just unknown aspect of it. And, like, I just yeah. really captures the... The true cosmic horror that, you know, I think he definitely pioneered. I think he pioneered. And I think I think it was a synthesis of a lot of earlier genres that he does a great job of bringing together. But it was not the zenith. No. I, uh... I don't know. I mean, in... Would... Do you think H.P. Lovecraft would define some of Philip K. Dick's stuff as horror. Because there is some... Mm. Some of his things I find to be infinitely more horrifying in the way they're told. And they also play with the same concepts of, like, yeah. unknown. And... Is this real? Is this not? Yes, and you are often in the same position as the protagonist on whether right. or not, you know, like what reality is. I, the reason I like his writing so much is it kind of makes you question what reality even is. Yeah, I think it's different in this very specific way. In a Lovecraftian view, you can only go mad if we share reality. So what I mean by that is that, like, in Philip K. Dick, it's is this merely subjective or is this real? Oh. Whereas in Lovecraft, the madness is only possible, I think, through a communal shared sense of what reality is. Ah, uh, okay, I, I see what you mean. I might be wrong, but I that might be the dicey point that I would stick to. <laughs> I, I, I can see what you mean. And, you know... Philip K. Dick is an infinitely better writer. Than yeah, Philip K. Dick is a better writer, too. Yeah, he's just a much better novelist. <laughs> yeah, he's he, he has his chops. He's not going to make the the freshman mistakes or sophomore. There's, well, you know, it's it's uh, there's certain early stories from Lovecraft that are distinctly sophomoric. So. Yeah, definitely. And I, I haven't read anything from Philip K. Dick that... Fits that. Yeah, did, exactly. That didn't, like, blow me away. So I just... We're going to do, at some point, also a philosophy of Philip K. Dick. We're going to read uh, some essay, maybe a Baudrillard essay and do that. But That'd be fun. Yeah. Especially, like, looking at some of his later stuff where he is yeah. starting to dive a little bit more into, like, philosophical, theological kind of shit. Like, Vallis is... It's great. Man, it's, it's, a, yeah. it's a killer novel. All right, well, that is... I would say, roughly speaking, my thoughts on the essay and on Philip K. Dick in general. You mean 
H.P. Lovecraft. Philip K. Dick. Oh my gosh, H.P. Lovecraft. <laughs> We're gonna get to Philip K. Dick next. I don't. I don't have a coherent Philip K. Dick. It's. It's gonna be a lot more complicated. I think. Oh, it's uh, infinitely more. Yeah. There's th- there's a lot more work in parts behind a racist man writing spooky stuff. <laughs> <laughs> well, anyway, thank you all for joining us. Uh, join us next time for the Freud essay on the uncanny. Indeed. Until next time. <laughs>